morning. Um, so today is Pro-Life Sunday or Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, we're going to be talking about some, some sensitive things, some things that I know have affected uh, some people here today. So before I get started, um, I just want to say if this some of this touches a chord with you um, or after uh, listening to the sermon today you're distressed, um, please find an elder or someone on the prayer team uh, to talk to. Uh, don't just let that, that sit. Um, so, I've been preparing for this sermon um, in the evenings with my kids running around. Uh, and I was thinking about uh, how so often being pro-life really means to us being against things. Um, so when people hear pro-life, they think anti-abortion, anti-fetal stem cell research, anti-planned parenthood. Now, I want to be clear, we are against those things. But that is kind of like saying, I went down to the link to watch the Eagles because I really love driving on I-95. So today, I want to talk about what we are for and why we are for it. I want to talk about why the world is not for it, and I want to talk about what that means for us. We follow God. So to talk about what we are for, we have to talk about what God is for. And that's where I will start, talking about how God sees your neighbor. And then we're going to talk about how the world sees your neighbor. And then we're going to finish by talking about what that means for us as a church. So what does God think about your neighbor? Recently, I had a neighbor whose septic system was overflowing. So we had raw sewage pouring down the sidewalk in front of our house for about, what, three or four days before I called the township. Um, but on the other hand, to be fair, I have a bush that is up against my neighbor's yard, so we kind of share this bush. Uh, and I think they've trimmed their side about three times since I've trimmed mine. Um, but to be honest, I haven't been paying that great attention, so it could be more. Um, on the same side, my kids are constantly building structures out of scrap wood that only they know what they are. Um, and I know my neighbor wishes that it was a bit neater in my yard. So neighbors can be difficult. I know, because I am one. But nevertheless... God loves your neighbor, and he loves you, and he knows a lot worse things about you and your neighbor than you know. It's not a shallow love either. It's a deep love of a creator who has put something of himself in you. Humanity is sacred because God created man in his image. Genesis 1, 26-28 tells us, then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. So, to understand who we are, 
and how God sees us, you have to understand some things about God. See, God is a creator God. He created us to take care of and watch over his creation. He created us to work under him in his work. God is a relational God. You have God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who work together and have worked together for all eternity. And God created us in his image to be part of that. So, if you've read a little further in the Bible, past the first two chapters, you know um, that things went off the rails pretty quickly. Adam and Eve sinned, so they were no longer able to continue working in cooperation with God in the same way. They became separated from God. But that separation didn't change God's love for the creature he had created in his image. It didn't change God's love for your neighbor, even though your neighbor is a sinner. Not at all. He immediately began on his plan to redeem us to redeem his creation that he had created in his image. That plan is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. Everyone who grew up in the church knows the verse that I'm about to say. Many who didn't grow up in the church know it too. If you don't know it, you're going to be able to hear it with fresh ears, and that's a blessing. But if you do, I want you to really try and hear it. So this is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That was God's plan, to send his Son, the Son he loved and had spent all of time with, in communion together, to die, and to die for us. Sinners who were separated from him. In Romans 5 it says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though, for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God laid it all out on the line. He sent his son, whom he loved, to die for us, to redeem us, and to be reunited to us. And in being reunited to us, God pulls us back into his work, his mission. In the beginning, that mission was what we talked about before, managing his creation. But now... It's bringing others back into communion with God. In Acts 1.8, Paul quotes Jesus saying, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we who were separated from God, dead in our trespasses and sins, now are brought back to God, but not just that, we are also called to bring others back as well. So God has brought things full circle. He is redeeming his work, and in redeeming his work, he is calling us to be part of his work again. So how does God see your neighbor then? 
Your neighbor is his creation, made in his image to be in relationship with him. She is somebody who is worth the life of his son. She is someone he wants to include in his redemptive work. So this is how God sees your neighbor, as invaluable. Now, godless eyes look at your neighbor with a very different perspective. The world sees people as either objects to use or as problems to solve. Now, this approach has a history that goes as far back as the fall. It starts at the very beginning of man's sin. I'm not going to give you a comprehensive list uh, because I don't think we have that much time. Um, But we're going to hit some lowlights. So, in Genesis, we see the story of Abram um, trying to pass off his wife, Sarah, as his sister because he feared the king of Egypt. So they went and were in Egypt, uh, and his wife was very beautiful. He thought that if the king of Egypt knew that Sarah was his wife, the king would kill him and take her. It was a lawless time. So he attempted to deceive the king, and he dishonored his wife. He treated his wife as a tool to gain favor, and not with the honor due to her as his wife and a daughter of God. So, a little later, you have the story, uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, So there are some angels who visit Lot in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to entertain themselves by abusing the angels that came to visit Lot. So they asked uh, Lot to send the angels who were under his protection out to them so that they could have their way with them. They thought that the angels were just human visitors to their town, and they wanted to treat them as a small, destructive child treats a toy. Play with it, break it, and throw it away. This is often how we see people treat other people. Skipping forward a little later in the Bible, the Egyptians uh, have um, the Jews living in Egypt um, with them. uh, And they see the growth of the Jewish people among them as a great threat. See, God was with the Jews and he had blessed his people. uh, And he made them increase in number. The Egyptians feared that the Jews would overwhelm them, that they would take the country over and displace them. So they saw the Jews not as people, but as a problem. And so they did what people have so often done when they see others as a problem. They slaughtered them. But the Egyptians were not barbarians. They were a civilized society. Uh, They created great buildings and masterworks that you can still see today. So they did not slaughter indiscriminately. They didn't just go out and start uh, taking swords to uh, any any Jewish people they saw on the street, they set up a, a bureaucratic program to take care of it. See, slaughtering adults is difficult and messy. Adults tend to fight back. Um, and also, adults can be really useful. They can do stuff for you. Um, I mean, sometimes children can do stuff for you, but it's not reliable. Trust me. Um, 
No, so the Pharaoh simply ordered that all the baby boys uh, of the Jews be thrown into the Nile. It's a simple, effective, and clean method of population control. This is what happens when people see people as problems. So let's fast forward even farther, and we can see God's own people, the Jews, sacrificing their children to foreign gods to try and win those gods' favor. The word of, the God, uh, word of God is spoken by Jeremiah, tells us this in Jeremiah 7, uh, 1 to 7 and 31. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates and worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place... And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. And from verse 31. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Jeremiah is a prophet of God speaking to the people who are supposed to be God's people. They claim the name of the Lord. They say, this is the temple of the Lord. But they do not honor the Lord. Because they do not love strangers, orphans, or widows. They shed innocent blood. And we see later in verse 31 that the blood that they shed is the blood of their own children sacrificed to false gods. This is horrific. It's perverse. Child sacrifice is perhaps the worst example of objectification that there is. A parent has a child who is made in God's image, but also in part in the parent's image. That parent is willing to treat that child as a bargaining chip to try and get in good with a god so that they can get something that they want. So we need to be wary because God's people can be complicit in treating people as objects. We are not immune to this type of behavior. People who call themselves followers of God uh, have committed um, acts that dishonor God's image all throughout history in the Bible and even in our own history as a country. So if we go a bit far for, uh, for farther forward in history, we come to the founding of the United States. Now, there is a certain tendency among patriotic conservatives 
to downplay the sins that were woven into the founding of our country. But we as a church must not do this. Now, our country was founded with some godly influences and impulses. There were godly men among the founders of this nation. Men who supported justice and freedom. But I can't call this a Christian nation. Because there was also an ungodly willingness to accept and institutionalize the enslavement of black Americans. Those who supported slavery argued that black people were lesser forms of humans. And they used that argument to justify treating uh, Africans as property. There were others who did not support slavery and who were, in fact, uh, against it. Now, unfortunately, almost all of those were too willing to compromise. Ironically, men who had fought tooth and nail to avoid paying taxes on tea were willing to allow slavery to continue to avoid a conflict with slaveholders. They justified their compromise by arguing that slavery would eventually disappear on its own if it was managed properly and if the right laws were enacted to make it less attractive. As we know, that justification did not turn out. It would take a war and over half a million dead to bring an end to the terrible crime of slavery. See, slaves were not viewed as children of God, imbued with the rights and dignity due to those who are created in his image. They were seen as useful, objectified, and used. Now, after the slaves were freed, those who had previously viewed the slaves as useful now viewed them as a problem. You see, to maintain the idea that humans should be treated as property, the slaveholders had to devalue them. They had to see black people as less than themselves in order to live with themselves. If you want, there's a, uh, you're interested, there is a large literature on this. And a complicated apologetic that was developed legally and morally in the South um, prior to the Civil War to justify the institution of slavery. Um, it's pretty horrific. So the slaveholders uh, said that slaves were lazy, childlike, deceptive, thieving, imprudent, and impudent. And this was not something only believed by a few, and it wasn't limited to those who owned slaves or who fought for the South. Um, after uh, slavery was done away with uh, in the um, mid to end of the uh, 19th century, then in the early 20th century, there was a big concern in this country about how to deal with uh, people that um, thinkers uh, and politicians, including people like uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, uh, thought were inferior. There was a concern that the uh, white people in America would be overwhelmed. Um, so it's not surprising that these uh, thinkers, who were mostly white and wealthy, um, wanted to eliminate people who were different from them. So they wanted to exclude from society people who were black, Asian, poor, immigrants, people with criminal histories, people who were physically and mentally disabled. 
So this point of view came in a lot of different flavors. Um, some thinkers uh, proposed sterilization um, for people that they thought should not be able to reproduce. Um, there were others who just thought that uh, if they, you know, had the, the right structures for things, that famine and disease would do the job of, of controlling the population. Um, now, because of the Holocaust, uh, eugenics, which is what this line of thinking is called, the, the idea that you can improve a society by managing who can uh, reproduce in that society, um, eugenics essentially died out after World War II. But the idea that the children of the poor and the unfit were problems which needed to be dealt with did not disappear. Uh, these concerns led to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that made legal abortion the law of the land. And if you, if you take a look at the statistics nowadays, uh, sadly, abortion continues to have the effect that the eugenicists would have wanted. Non-white women have abortions at rates far exceeding white mothers. 69% of abortions are to mothers who are economically disadvantaged, people who are either uh, within, uh, un either under the poverty line or within 200% of the poverty line. 90% uh, of babies who are known to have Down syndrome before birth are aborted. So racism and classism may not be the intention of abortion policy in our country right now, but it is the result. Without abortion, we would likely have a very different country than the one that we have today. Now, to be fair, many people supported abortion and still support abortion because of the difficulties that they see people have in poor families. This is an understandable point of view, if you don't know God. If you think people are just a collection of shells in a human shape, if you don't know that God created man and woman in his image, if you don't know that, then it makes perfect sense to deal with the problem of people who are poor and different by making an end of them. Especially if you can do it before they are born, before anyone has to see it. But we do know better. We have been taught better. In Galatians 3, it says... There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we know that there is no difference in value between one human life and another. Steve Jobs is no more made in the image of God than I am. LeBron James is no more made in God's image than Maurice Haba. And Maurice has a better hairline. <laughs> I have to confess that this is not always my attitude. And I think if you're honest, it's not always your attitude either. We make judgments that are ungodly about the worth of people. Uh... You know, sometimes when I'm uh, sitting on the couch reading a book or looking at Facebook and uh, a small child comes up and asks me a uh, question, um, I don't consider them 
as valuable as I consider myself. And sometimes when I'm walking downtown uh, past, uh, you know, from my office to the subway and I see someone on the corner asking for change, um, I don't see their life as as valuable as mine. I judge them. And that's wrong. That's something I need to repent of. So what I'm asking you this morning is, can you truly see everyone as children of God? Are you willing to see the image of God in everyone? Because if the answer is yes, it will have a deep impact on how you view this issue, the issue of abortion, the issue of human life, the issue of eugenics, the issue of euthanasia. Because this is not a social justice issue. This is an issue of whether you're going to see your fellow man, woman, and child, whatever their color, their background, their education, their income, their accent, their circumstance, or the language that they speak, whether you're going to see them as God sees them or as the world sees them. So let's talk about what that means. I think we have a a good contrast now between what God's eyes are for your neighbor and what the world's are. But what does it mean to, in in action, in application, to uh, see your neighbor as God sees them? God doesn't see the richest billionaires of the world, Carlos Slim, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, or Larry Page, as more valuable than an infant baby born to a 16-year-old and her 18-year-old boyfriend who was incarcerated. Respect is what comes first here. Respect is what comes first when we're talking about how we should see our neighbor more like God sees our neighbor. Respect means that we recognize that everyone is made in God's image. Respect means that the abortion of a child with cerebral palsy born to a mother with drug issues, is a tragedy and a crime. Respect means that we value lives regardless of what we think about the quality of those lives. Respect is the foundation. Honoring the image of God in others is what we do to acknowledge that it is God's perspective, not, not our perspective, that matters. Love is what follows. Love pours out of us because of the love God has shown for us. 1 John 4, 19-20 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As the ultimate act of love was Jesus coming to sacrifice himself to redeem us, the ultimate act of love for us is to share the hope of that redeeming love. I want to share a story with you. You may have heard of Kermit Gosnell. Gosnell treated women and babies as commodities that he abused, exploited, and killed for his own profit. Now, if you've read that story, you know his callousness and evil is a reflection of a culture that doesn't care for 
and would not rather not be bothered with the problems of poor urban folks. It's a sad story, but it didn't end there. Alpha Pregnancy Services just opened an office on the same block where Gosnell's clinic was. Alpha gives hope to young mothers who are faced with pregnancy in difficult circumstances. They tell them that they are valued by God. They tell them that their babies are precious. And they do what they can to help. This is an action that tells people that they matter. It shows people that they matter. And this is how we share God's redeeming love. Now, there are others of us who have been affected by abortion and need to experience the healing effect of God's love. There may be some with us this morning who have had abortions, who have paid for an abortion, who are, who, or have otherwise been involved. And I want to tell you, if that is you, God's love is for you. You are also made in God's image. Christ's blood covers your sin also. All that you need to do is repent to God and experience freedom from sin. And i got to tell you, this is a message that has to spread. It has to spread because we need it. Abortion is a wound our country suffers from, and we can't acknowledge it because it's too painful and too ugly. We're like a guy walking around with a gangrenous wound, but he won't admit he has a gangrenous wound because he doesn't have a doctor to go see. So he feels like it's better to to act like it's not there. See, if we're going to tell the truth to ourselves and each other, it has to be done with a message of forgiveness. Because if we're not talking about God's redemptive love, then we're not going to talk about it. And I don't want to single anybody out here because there is enough sin and repentance to go around. There are fathers who helped or stood idly by while their children were killed. There are grandparents who encouraged their children to pursue killing their grandkids. There are many of us who stood idly by and said nothing while people we know pursued abortion. There are doctors and nurses who have participated in abortion in various capacities. And we all have to repent of our own apathy and indifference. Our nation will need to repent. And we will need to carry that message. The church needs to carry that message. It's a beautiful message. And we need to start now. So finally, I want to say this. We know how God sees us and sees our neighbor as his image bearer and wants every life to be brought back into redemption, into relationship with him. We know how the world sees lives. We know that message. And we know that we need to argue against it. But we also live in a world where abortion is the law of the land. It's an evil thing. And thinking about it, is discouraging. It seems like it is never going to end. Sometimes it seems like our efforts could be better spent on other things. 
things that we feel will make a difference. Things like education that will help the kids who are already with us. I understand that. It's hard, it's unpopular, and it feels futile. But please just remember that God sent his son to die out of his love to redeem the life of the baby that the world says is a problem. So don't despair. We serve God, the God of the universe. God can end this. God will end this in his time. I am confident that he will not be patient forever. It won't end tomorrow, but it will end, and I want to be part of it. I want to be part of God's redeeming work that claims every life as precious and holy. I want to see the day that this country stands up and says, no more. We are God's people, his sons and daughters, enemies made friends. If we don't stand up, who will? Thanks, we're going to have uh, Bob come up now, I think. So, thanks, Bob.